I'm Audrey Cooper, the editor-in-chief of the San Francisco Chronicle, and today on Fifth Emission, the art of trying to predict the future of the coronavirus. The Bay Area, as well as the rest of the world, we've all taken unprecedented steps to halt the coronavirus's spread. But how will we know when these efforts have worked, or whether they've worked at all? Disease modelers who study the path of pandemics are making their best guesses for how widespread the virus already is and how certain mitigation tactics will alter the trajectory. But so much is left up to chance and human nature. Erin Alday is joining me today. She's written a story about disease modelers and what we might be able to anticipate. Erin, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. So the CDC has made some pretty dire predictions leading up to this about what we might face um, had we taken no measures at all. Do you want to start with what the worst case scenario was if we didn't do anything? Well, you know, there are a lot of people that are looking at that now, a lot of modelers, a lot of um, scientists out there doing that work. The CDC has been, you know, taking some of those into consideration. And so I want to put the caveat here that these are models are inherently unreliable. There's like a huge range in what we can anticipate. And so the numbers can seem really scary. But, you know, these are just really people punching numbers in and making best guesses. All that aside, you know, we're talking about if we let this go unchecked, potentially, you know, more than a million deaths um, that don't don't need to happen. So you could look at more than a million people dying from this. That's Incredible. And and I have to say, before I read your story, I did not know there was such a thing as a disease modeler. What do these people do? So disease modelers actually, you know, they're around all the time. They they work every flu season to anticipate, you know, when the season has begun, how bad it's going to get. They base it off of, you know, what flu strains are circulating um, in the southern hemisphere to guess what we might expect in the northern hemisphere. Um, and they help hospitals prepare for, you know, what the flu season is going to look like. So they do that. They also make public, you know, they help public health departments make decisions about everything from mosquito abatement to, uh, you know, measles outbreaks you know, they're, they're kind of constantly, you know, keeping track of numbers, keeping track of, uh, of cases, and then they put it into these sometimes very complicated um, algorithms that take into account everything from, you know, household income, uh, household size, um, some of them get really crazy and look at, you know, air pollution, all kinds of environmental factors that could impact the spread of disease. So they can get like really out there in terms of of the modeling that they do. But right now, of course, you know, we have modelers all over the world that are going nuts trying to figure out where this, this coronavirus uh, pandemic now is going to go. Um, the problem is that it's so dynamic, you know, we're just collecting data constantly. Um, every single hour, it changes really. And, and it's, you know, they're, they're making really, they're, they're doing their best job to make, make these guesses, but it's just so hard for them to pin anything down. Why is it important to model this at all? I mean, it, 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 what happens happens. It, it seems like on one hand, you might argue, you know, scaring everybody with these um, apocalyptic sort of um, predictions would be really um, alarmist and, and not necessary. So why do these people, why, why does this profession even exist and why is it important in this case? Well, there's a good reason why they often don't actually talk publicly about their worst case models and that is that they don't want to cause alarm, um, which is, again, why I say that with a caveat. You know, we want to be careful when we talk about these numbers. But that said, again, you know, on a, on a small scale, you know, in the Bay Area right now, they're usually using models to say, you know, we have 
you know, I think we're up to almost 80 cases in Santa Clara County. They will use models to try to figure out what does 80 cases mean as far as the number of cases in the community. Now, they're you know, this is such a dynamic situation that nobody really has any idea. So nobody's pinning any numbers on that. But they might use modeling to try to figure out they'll look at the pace of of disease of, of case counts, for example. So they can look at how quickly these numbers are climbing and figure out, okay, well, what is the trigger point where we say, now we've had enough cases that we're going to close schools. Now we've had enough cases that we're going to, you know, close down large events. So they use these sort of case counts in combination with models that they're that they're looking at to make, you know, very serious decisions about about public health. But doesn't that also imply that the base data they're relying on is accurate? And it seems like we've had such problems with testing. It, are these models based on inaccurate information? It's not so much inaccurate information as it is incomplete information. And yeah, that's a huge problem. Everybody that I talk to talks about that. Um, it's a major issue in the United States because the testing has been so um, so lacking for so long. And the people that we've been detecting are very specific kinds of people. So for a long time, you know, for the first few weeks of this, we were only really testing people who were the most likely to be infected and not keeping any track of what was going on at the community level in terms of just the virus spreading, you know, freely out there. And now that we're doing some more testing, we're getting a little bit better idea about that. But it still is you know, everybody says that it's vastly underestimating what is actually out there. And the problem is that we don't really have any way of knowing how how much it's underestimating that. Now, all that said, the people who do disease modeling, the people who are experts in this, they have ways of taking that into account, of sort of thinking around that and trying to do their best to make these estimates, you know, even with that that lack of information. But it certainly makes their jobs a, a lot harder. And it also introduces a lot more variability into their their estimates, which makes them, you know, a lot less reliable. Well, that was my exact question. I've I've never been diagnosed with the flu, for example, my entire life because I just sit home and suck it up. Yeah. And uh, I, but yet they still have models based on that. Yeah, I mean, we do flu surveillance. So you may, you you probably have never been tested, or at least you may not know that you've been tested, but they, you might have had a sample taken at some point with the flu and had it be sent to some lab somewhere and it got tested and you just, you just weren't told. That's unlikely, but it's possible. But, you know, we have really big flu surveillance systems um, and means of kind of tracking flu, you know, throughout the, the season. But this one, you know, we don't have any such surveillance. We don't have any means of just kind of keeping tabs of, you know, a baseline of how many cases might be out there. Um, and, you know, there's an argument to be made that an individual doesn't need to know. Like you and I, we're not in any high risk category. Um, if we were to be tested positive for coronavirus, we wouldn't do anything any differently than if we were sick with influenza, especially now that we're working from home, we would just stay home, um, which I'm already doing. But, you know, if if I was in a high risk category, I might want to know so that I could be really on the lookout for more serious symptoms and calling my doctor if I started feeling really awful and needed to be hospitalized. Um, and, you know, they want to know if, say, I'm working in a nursing home where I'm working with a lot of older people, they're going to want to know right away if I have coronavirus and I could potentially infect all the people there. Um, that would be very dramatic. So, you know, there are definitely people who we need to be testing and we're missing them now. What does it mean for these models if cases keep ticking up? And it, at what at what rate is it alarming? Because we've we've been told over and over 
there are going to be more cases. There are going to be more deaths. At, at what point do the d- disease modelers say, oh, this is worse than we thought? I don't think anybody knows the answer to that at this point. Um, part of the problem is, and this is you know, an interesting problem to have, is that now that the testing is starting to pick up, um, and it's only going to get more so in the next next few weeks, we're told, we're promised, um, presumably that means the case counts will go up. So you would expect that just because we're testing more people. And I'm told that the people who do disease modeling are able to take that into account. They're able to factor in increased testing and how that impacts, you know, the increase in case counts so that they can account for that. Um, and I'm sure they know what they're doing. But, but you know, the truth is, I don't know that we're going to know right away when, you know, we've reached some sort of peak or, you know, when we've reached some place where maybe we need to do even more aggressive measures than what we've already seen introduced, which is kind of hard to imagine. But, you know, we could lock down entire communities. We could really, you know, shut down all stores. We could we could get more aggressive in how we treat this thing. And, you know, if we see the case counts climb really dramatically high, um, and I don't know what that is. I don't know what what that means at this point. I don't know that anybody can tell us the answer to that right now, but but there is certainly room for that. I think what everybody's expecting is the case counts are going to climb pretty steadily um, and maybe dramatically as testing increases, but we're kind of going to give this a couple weeks to play out and then we'll see, hopefully, a kind of flattening that we'll see things maybe not taper off, but at least not get worse and worse, um, and then hopefully go down from there. And I have to say, I'm talking about the Bay Area right now. I think it's going to be a different picture for the rest of the country. Is is there any assurance that we should take that China now says they have a handle on this and that they've seen the peak and they're coming down from it? Yeah, absolutely. We should take assurance. I think what that shows is that this is controllable, that if you do a really aggressive public health response, that you can you know, kind of kick this thing out or at least get it under control. Uh, you know, the question is, you know, is what we're doing now, is that going to do the trick? And that's that's really hard to say. I mean, China went, you know, put in some really dramatic quarantine efforts. They they sealed off, you know, a city of 11 million people. They closed down, you know, borders everywhere. Um, we're not doing that as of yet. Um, I think nobody, you know, we're all hoping that we don't get there. Uh you know, but at the same time, you look at what's happening in in Italy, and you know they tried to do public health responses, and then eventually the cases just climbed out of control. That they had to now lock down the whole country. So, you know, it's I think we're hoping that we're doing enough now, and mostly we're hoping that we intervened early enough um, before this thing got truly out of control. But this goes back to the testing. We don't really know if we got in there early enough. Well, one of the things I keep reflecting on as I'm reading these stories is a couple of weeks ago, I told you I got an email from somebody who was in Italy and who said, um, everybody's just going about their business here. Nobody's freaking out. Mm-hmm. And it's just Americans that are freaking out. And now in retrospect, I think, well, maybe they should have been freaking out a little bit more. I think that's exactly what we're looking at now uh, when we look at Italy and we're Italy because we're about three weeks behind them. So you think I think that's exactly what you should be thinking about is that they were two or three weeks ago thinking this was just ho-hum and look at where they are now. Um, I mean, you know, we're a very different country than Italy. So that's part of the problem, too, is you can't say we're going to go down that path because we're a different culture. We're a different society. We have different, you know, we're more spread out. But, you know, it's hard to say that we're going to follow that path. But certainly that's something we're thinking about now is that they were pretty blase about it. And now look where they are. And, 
you know, it seems like we're taking this very seriously in the United States. And yet people are still kind of going to movies and going out about their business. So, you know, I don't know how we're going to (laughs) do. Well, and and we're also a very different country from from China, of course, which is, uh, you know, more used to uh, uh, dictatorial orders coming down from their government and and following those orders, too. And you have to wonder if we'd even be able to contain, you know, Americans love their freedom. They love their cars. They love to be able to do whatever they want. I think you're seeing that on the streets, at least in my neighborhood today. Um, China's not like that. And they were able to, you know, it, it seems start to get control of this. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's a big, a big factor here is it's a and that comes back to the cultural thing is we're just not used to that. And the other thing I'll say in my reporting that, you know, I realized with this is um, we don't know how long this is going to go down for. So, you know, people may be sort of like, okay, I can go two or three weeks of my kid's school being closed, my kid's school being closed and, and, you know, kind of not being able to go to concerts and, and, you know, just kind of various, you know, infringements on my on my you know ability to move around and and do what i want but what if this goes on for 4 weeks or 2 months or you know we don't know when this is going to let up is the truth and if it works then yeah we'll probably be in this kind of state of things for a month or two which that's a long time if you think about it and then if it doesn't work i don't know what it looks like after that uh, you don't have to tell me after one day of working from home with our entire family here. I I, I fear two months of this. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was messy today. Yeah, I'm speaking with health reporter Aaron Alday about the mitigation measures and modeling around the coronavirus. We'll be right back after this. So, Aaron, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, uh, as you say, we're 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 doing a lot of mitigation measures right now. Schools are closed, libraries are closing, museums are closing. There are no sports uh, uh, games being played. What mitigation measures do the disease modelers say will make the most impact? Uh, oh, that's a really good question. Uh, I mean, okay, actually, that's a pretty simple answer, though. Um, I'm told the ones that will make the most impact are the individual behaviors. So honestly, like washing your hands, um, don't cough on people's faces. If you're sick, don't go out in public and don't get close to people. And if you see somebody out in public who's coughing and sick, steer clear of them. Um, it's the, the, really the most dramatic things. And the, the whole reason like we're canceling all these all these big events and we're, is, is to keep people away from each other. So the more people can kind of take responsibility for that and do it on their own, that's going to have the most impact. I'm really glad you said that because that was my next question. I I I see I, I this morning I, I walked out yesterday. I worked from home and I got 168 steps. in. <laughs> this morning, I was determined that I would start off on a better foot. My son and I went on a walk. There were a ton of people in the coffee shops, at the breakfast places, and I started to wonder if I was the only person in my neighborhood who was taking this seriously. And we we also have, you know, school canceled and the parents are texting me and saying, let's get together for a play date. And, and I keep telling everybody, if we all band together, this will last a lot less, like a shorter amount of time. Am, 
And please tell me I'm right because I keep admonishing all these people that if we just all stick together for a little while, we can make this last uh, a much shorter amount of time. You're definitely right. <laughs> I mean, you're Thank definitely you. right on that. Um, you know, but I honestly, I I don't entirely blame people because, you know, when we say this is unprecedented, we mean it's unprecedented. I mean, I've never seen anything like this. Um, I've never thought about, you know, this kind of social distancing. And I think it's understandable that people don't quite understand what that means. Um, even with all the messaging that's going out there, I think it's natural for people to be like, okay, schools are closed. I get that. Schools are just, you know, d diseases run through them like crazy, but not to think about that on a smaller scale of, you know, play dates and going into restaurants and coffee shops and whatnot. It just, it's so completely outside of our you know, our realm of possibility that it doesn't even I think it just doesn't cross a lot of people's minds. So you're doing you're doing good work, Audrey, by reminding people by telling <laughs> Thank them. You. I, I feel like the babysitter of, of Noe Valley in San Francisco, I have to say. But you know, I also think there's a, a, a logistical problem that people have if you can't go to work and you can't work from home. These coffee shops and places like that are are the only places we have. And we've, we, you know, we have a culture of that too. And, and I think a lot of people are just, you know, some people are unable to just stay in their house for a month and some people are actually unwilling, uh, unable to, to live their lives like that. Well, I mean, that's true, but there's also, you know, there's, this is going to be an interesting story to play out is that's not healthy for us, right? Like social isolation is a real health problem. Um, and I don't think, you know, we'll, we've ever experienced anything on this scale before. Um, you know, especially for older adults, that's a really big issue, but it could become an issue for all of us. I mean, anxiety is and 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 loneliness are real factors. And, you know, as time goes on, that, you know, there we joke about it. You know, you talk joke about going stir crazy with, you know, the family in the house and everything. But these are real issues over the long term. They really can add up to to have an impact. And I think that's something we need to be thinking about now is as this plays out in the long term, we can't all just hold up in our homes for a month. Um, that's just not going to be healthy. So, you know, I mean, you can get outside, you can go on hikes. There are things you can do to, you know, get out and get some fresh air. But it's, I don't know what the, what the workaround is, you know, when we're supposed to keep our distance from each other. And yet we need each other to be sane and healthy. <laughs> Absolutely. So if we um, if, if we all band together and we stay home, um, how will we know when this has peaked? Or do you only know in retrospect? I mean, you only know for sure in retrospect. But I think that, you know, once once we get some more testing on board and hopefully that will ramp up enough in the next couple of weeks that we'll feel confident that we're getting a pretty good idea of a pretty good picture of the state of things. And I think most people do think that within the next couple of weeks, we will be there um, once we get the commercial labs on board and and lots more people tested. So once we get that up, and I think once we see numbers flattening out, so we're not seeing, you know, massive jumps in new cases every single day, which is kind of where we're at now, um, that will be a sign that things are working. And then they'll they'll probably wait until those numbers start to drop until we're actually not, you know, maybe we are even going a couple days without seeing any new cases at all. And that's how we'll know that we've peaked um, and start slowly kind of with, withdrawing, <laughs> coming out of our caves and, and going back to life. But I don't know what that looks like. I mean, I mean, I don't know, 
you know, do you just let kids back into school? Do you just encourage people to get back on BART? I don't I don't know if that's just sort of, you know, open the floodgates and see what happens or if there's sort of like a gent- gentle reentry. Um, that'll be interesting to see how that plays out again with the whole unprecedented thing. <laughs> We've never seen this before. Well, that's exactly was my question is, when do we go back to business as usual? Do we just turn on the lights and all the sports games are back and all the concerts are back? And would that re-peak everything? Or, you know, is there a way of easing back into normal life? I will say this, that right now everybody's watching China and I think a couple of other countries very carefully to see if you know, because they're they're in that process now of basically trying to to do reentry, going back to you know normal life, and people are going to be watching very closely to see if they get any flare ups, if there's a re a resurgence, um, just to kind of see what happens as as they go back, and you know if things go smoothly there, then I think that will give us a sense that we can do the same here. Um, if they don't, then that's a whole other issue. But, but I would, I would, you know, I, the thing is like with things like schools, um, you know, we're talking already about like mid April, I think for going back to schools, right. Or maybe early April. I mean, you know, at some point you raise the question of, and I, I don't want to, you know, be alarmist or anything, but you have to wonder, are we going to be able to go back to school, you know, before the end of the year? Um, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know that we'll know by mid-April that this thing is is under control enough for kids to go back. And then if you look at, okay, let's do it another couple of weeks, and now we're in the beginning of May, well, what do you do then? Um, and again, you know, I don't I don't want to be you know causing undue alarm or undue fear or anything. We just don't know what what it's going to be. It's going to be looking like. No, I I think I've spoken to a lot of parents who say I don't think our kids are going to make it through right. the end of the year. And I don't think things are going to resume by the end of the month either. Did the experts you speak spoke to, did they have any idea of when these restrictions could lift? Or or were they just saying it's probably not going to be as soon as we think? Uh, more, more the latter. It's not going to be as soon as we think. Um, nobody really knows when we could lift them. Nobody certainly was willing to put a time on that. And I will say pretty much everybody I talked to when I asked about the two to three weeks that we keep hearing, it was basically like, yeah, you're told that because hearing otherwise, people don't want to hear that. <laughs> it's hard to tell people you, when you're making these announcements and you're telling people to shift your life to, you know, to keep kids out of school. It's a lot easier for people to take two or three weeks than to be told who knows? You know, it's indefinite. Um, people have a really hard time with that messaging. I I, I know I have a hard time <laughs> with that messaging and uh, it's going to be very hard. But I think the, the good news is we've seen so many actions taking place that are really positive and that people are keeping their kids home and things are being canceled that m- maybe there is a silver lining in all of this. Yeah, I think it's I think it actually is. You know, I see a lot of this in the Bay Area. People seem to be taking this to heart. I mean, I think if we see people not taking it seriously, it's just because they're still wrapping their head around it. I don't think it's because they don't care or because they, you know, think we're overreacting or anything. I think they just haven't quite gotten the message yet. But I do think that that people will get on board. Um, You know, I mean, you just look at how many people are working from home. I mean, these, you know, big companies have taken really assertive gestures there that they didn't have to. And I think, I mean, they did have to, but but they chose to do that and and really took the initiative there. And I think that that's astounding. I think that's really impressive. And I think 
people are responding to that. And hopefully we'll we'll see that going on long enough that it'll make a difference. Uh, Aaron, your story is online right now at sfchronicle.com. Thank you. I know you have not had a day off in a long time. I hope you do get out to one of your hiking trails this weekend and get some fresh air. Uh, Thanks. Me too. Thank you to Aaron Alday for being with me today. Thank you to King Kaufman and Karen Creighton for producing this episode. And thank you for listening. Fifth Emission is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. If you like this podcast, please consider becoming a financial supporter of the largest newsroom in Northern California. You can sign up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod.